Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Joining me today is Dr. Jonathan A.C. Brown. Dr. John is an American scholar of Islamic studies. Since 2012, he has been the associate professor at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Wall School of Foreign Service. He holds the Al-Walid bin Talal Chair of Islamic Civilization at Georgetown University. He has authored several books including Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy, Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval and Modern World, and Muhammad, A Very Short Introduction. He also published several articles in the fields of Hadith, Islamic Law, Salafism, Sufism, and Arabic Language. Quick summary of the show. I start off with Dr. Jonathan by asking him Kareem's five fun questions. So that was pretty cool. Number two, we get into fiqh and Islamic law. What's the difference between urf and sharia? Then in about 27 minutes in, we discuss a very interesting article that he co-authored with Dr. Shadi al-Masri, who I'm hoping to get on as well at some point soon, inshallah. And in this article, it's found at Yaqeen Institute, um, I'll have the link at the bottom uh, of the show, the description. And this article is called LGBTQ and Islam Revisited, The Days of the Donald. In this article, Dr. Jonathan discusses how we should relate or work with this current movement of the LGBTQ issue and what impact it has socially and politically on Muslims. And he talks about different positions that a Muslim could take and discusses the pros and cons of each one. So some of those positions were unquestioned embrace, rejection, neutralism, and what he calls rakio, which stands for rights affirmation, common cause, Islamic orthodoxy. Um, and Dr. Jonathan breaks down what all of those positions entail. And then Dr. Shadi actually responds to his positions and rebutes certain components of it. Um, it's a really good article and I suggest everyone go check it out too before you listen to the show um, so you have that context down. Um, but it's but it's really powerful because it does kind of show how you can have two respectable Islamic scholars give different advice that isn't mutually exclusive around this current phenomena. And uh, at the end of our conversation, I also got to ask him some questions from our patrons. If you're not a patron, please go visit patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. Help sponsor this show, guys. Um, all I'm asking for is at least $1 a month to sponsor the show. It takes a lot of time and effort for me to do this, and uh, I hope everyone's benefiting. Please help me continue to provide uh, valuable content like this. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars. So I hope you enjoy the show. And thanks again for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Dr. Jonathan Brown, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. I am a huge fan of your work. Sounded like you're a rock star, so. <laughs> oh, no one object. <laughs> not, not bad, right? My pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. We're going to start you off with Kareem's five fun questions to get you warmed up, and then we're going to get into the theme of our conversation, inshallah. Are you ready for your five fun questions? Yes. Excellent. 
So here's one that I got from the one of my patrons. I don't know if they know you. Maybe they do, but it's uh, kind of funny, and I figured I'd ask, and I know you you enjoy a sense of humor. So here it is. Question number one. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Um, what, kind of, what kind of equipment do I have? I mean, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put it this way. So if I had shin guards and a golf club i do the hundred duck sized horses if i had some kind of shield actually i don't need a shield i just need one like braveheart claymore you know scottish claymore the giant one the braveheart uses right if i had that i'd take on the uh duck horse sized duck got it excellent response okay i don't i'm not going to fall out of my chair if you say uh uh, no, but I'm going to ask you. You're you're a fan of the Beatles, right? Yeah, of course. Isn't everybody? Uh, to, to honestly, yeah. John, I I thought the same thing. Just like I thought everyone loves ice cream, but turns out it's not the case, man. <laughs> so yeah, oh, that's weird. I think I met someone the other day and didn't like ice cream. I was like, oh, it sucks. It sucks to be you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, of course I love the Beatles. Yeah. Excellent. So question two will be very relevant. If you could have a cup of coffee with John Lennon or Paul McCartney, which one would you choose? Oh, John Lennon. Hands down. Why is that? I mean, no, nothing against Paul McCartney, but I don't know. I think John Lennon was, uh, I mean, he struck me as being the real kind of, I mean, his, well, I mean, obviously one of the main lyricists, songwriters, but also I, I think like, I really like his uh, solo work more than uh, McCartney's solo work, like his post Beale solo work. I felt like John Lennon just psychologically much more interesting person and um uh i always thought he was better looking i remember even when i was a kid really um even when i was a kid i remember you know we go to my my grandparents house in new haven connecticut and and we'd we'd find their old beatles albums and then we'd watch like i remember watching hard day's night and on on the vhs and stuff and i just remember thinking like he was just um like I really like looking at him. You know, he was just, he's like a very aesthetically, um, you know, just a beautiful person. I mean, I think the other, obviously Ringo, you know, God bless him, is not going to win any awards. Uh, George Harrison, I, just, I don't know. For some reason, I was always just kind of compelled by him as a person uh, more than the other Beatles. And then, of course, you know, he was, you know, senselessly killed and it was horrible and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would I'd definitely have a cup of coffee with John Lennon myself um, for some similar reasons. I also just like the songs he wrote a lot more. Uh, so it sounds like John Lennon is the guy. Yeah. All right. How about this, John? Question number three. If you could be an animal for a day with human awareness, like you know you're you, which animal would you want to be for the day? A seagull. A seagull? Why a seagull? Why not a hawk or an eagle? I mean, seagulls can do everything hawks and eagles can, and they can go on the water, too. So you could, like, hang out in the ocean, you could walk around on land, and you could fly. All right. Well, can't argue with that. All right. How about this? If you can only have one dessert for the rest of your life, which one would you choose? Mm. Yeah, you know, I'd have to go with uh, vanilla ice cream and my grandfather's chocolate sauce recipe. Nice. And that's, that's not like a fudge. It's a sauce because there is a difference. Uh, yeah, it's a sauce. Got it. So does it get hard of, like when you pour it over? No, no, no. It's made of uh, a mixture of different types of kind of sweetness, chocolate, 
uh, unhealthy amount of sugar, butter, um, nutmeg, uh, cinnamon, and yeah, that's it, I think. I can't remember some of the other things. But And last question for you, if you could have one superhero power, which one would it be and why? That's a very good question. Um, uh, mind control. Ah, tell us more. I mean, I feel like that uh, kind of unlocks everything. Plus, I wouldn't have to worry about arguing with people anymore. I'd just be like, there you go. That's done. (laughs) Sounds like that's uh, one of your current stressors, John. I mean, no, I mean, like when you kind of live in the life of ideas, that's what you're. I mean, are you know, you're always, you know, arguing slash talking, discussing. And and so uh, sometimes it gets frustrating when people. Um, when people, you know, don't, you don't, they don't, you don't think they're responding in the way you think that they should respond, which of course might be my fault. But uh, anyway, oh, mashallah, man, we all, uh, we all make mistakes along the way. That doesn't mean we still don't have a lot to offer. And I certainly think you're one of those individuals. Hence why I, I'm, oh, I'm very honored to have you on the show. But uh, yeah, let's let's get into it. So you're an author of several books. Um, one of my mm. favorites is misquoting Muhammad Sallallahu and um, I'd, I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit more about how you feel you serve the world, and as far as being a professor and and uh, you're, you're being an educator. Yeah, so I guess me, uh, I would uh, I think of myself as doing two things. So one is to, or well, three things, right? So one would be to, in effect, translate a lot of the content of Islamic thought to an English-speaking audience. Um, not literally translating, but I mean, basically trans, you know, trans, uh, uh, yeah, translating in the sense of, of, of kind of moving from one tradition medium into another tradition medium and, and trying to give people an appreciation and a sense for what that, that world was like and what it has to offer um, and how it addressed any number of, of issues of interpretation and law and ethics and theology. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one would be, uh, to try and get, uh, people in the Western tradition to think more critically about where their worldview comes from, uh, what kind of assumptions they have about the world, uh, what kind of requests they're making of others and of themselves. And then, you know, maybe a combination of those two would be the third thing, which is to kind of try to uh, answer questions that are controversial or or pressing, you know. And I mean, things that are pressing tend to be controversial, right? Um, Kind of pressing questions today, but sort of answer them in the light of these these two kind of activities. One, kind of bringing the trying to kind of amalgamate, synthesize, and understand the Islamic tradition, but then kind of put it into a global discussion with the Western tradition, not as the way with the Western tradition being the kind of standard that has to be met, but simply being another another tradition in conversation uh, uh, in the kind of a global system. So that's what I would say. 
A beautiful response. Now, that kind of leads me to one of my first questions I want to ask you, which is, I know from, from your work, uh, what I've learned or taken away from your work amongst other scholars um, is there's, we generally, definitely the Western population, and certainly I would argue the Muslim community, we've got a lot of misconceptions and even, you know, myths that we still carry about ideas of Islamic law and fiqh. What are your thoughts about that? Oh yeah, I mean, I think um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that really uh, sort of one of the weights that burdens that uh, that uh, Muslims labor under is um, you know not 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 understanding, and I think well, let me restart. I mean, I think part of it is it's not that Muslims are unaware or fooled or something. I think that that that. Um, Islamic tradition portrayed itself in a certain way that was not always accurate, right? Not because it was it was sort of deceptive or something, but just because um, you know traditions will try and kind of like for example, you know, um, uh, you know, for like for example, you know, when when people in when politicians in the West talk about like law and order being tough on crime or, you know, things like that. So these are, you know, or, or, you know, we're a nation of laws and all these things like sort of there's certain ideas that are really important for how we see ourselves and how we see different kind of what are priorities for us, but they might not actually represent how daily law, daily life is, is, is carried out, not only at like a social level, but also in the legal realm. So, I mean, just take for one, I mean, this is just something that comes to my mind. Like, you know, if you, the, the issue of the Hadood is always really controversial for Muslims. You know, Muslims are, don't really know what to do about the fact that they have these, these like very serious, um, uh, you know, um, kind of severe laws uh, in their tradition. Um, and they don't really know how to, 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 you know, some people come and say, oh, well, these weren't supposed to be applied. And then you're like, well, okay, why do you have laws that are not supposed to be applied that don't make any sense? Uh, I wrote some stuff on this before. If any of your listeners want to read about it, uh, it's on Yaqeen. Um, if you look, I think it's called Stoning and Handcutting, where I explain all this. But in short, I mean, the, the right. you know, if you, if you go back and you read lots of Muslim just histories, they'll talk about how this ruler was so great because he implemented the hudud. And so you're thinking like, oh, wait, so I guess these were supposed to be implemented. And, you know, these are people really proud of doing this. But that actually isn't the like they didn't actually do this. Like that's when they, you know, it was almost like um, saying, you know, uh, American president, you know, was tough on crime and and, you know, uh, kept the country safe and grew the economy and all these things. Right. Like you just these are sort of things that we talk about that show what we think is important. But actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that any president did any of these things, right? So it's just when you talk about establishing the hudud or the, the boundaries of God, these were like statements that Muslim historians used to show that this person really cared about the Sharia, right? And it kind of became a symbol for talking about that. But it didn't actually mean right. it was like, okay, let's go chop a bunch of hands off. So that's so that's what I, I would say. I think one of the things that Muslims. Uh, do you have to deal with is is just kind of not only understanding their own tradition, but understanding it to the point where they understand how um, it's like kind of 
superficial presentation sometimes different from its substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of like you don't want to like it's always um, advisable not to be trigger happy. It's like don't be hudud happy. Yeah, you know, it's like as if like a ideal Islamic state means we're going to be chopping off hands and heads every month or something. And yeah, by the way, by the way, you know, very few Muslim rulers or states ever were hudud happy. I mean, they were just because it's it's simply put, it's just extremely difficult. Um, and people, you know, there's yeah, and I mean, I I actually give an example of this and what I wrote. Like this one guy. I mean, it was so rare to get someone's hand chopped off that, like, when one guy did it in the 1300s in Mecca, um, the guy who got his hand chopped off actually assassinated that judge. Wow. And, and I mean, it was, like, such a big deal that it became, I mean, it was, like, one of the, you know, if it was, like, you know, if you had the, the year in review, you know, where you had, like, a couple of news items that, <laughs> that would have been one of those news items that year. It was such a big deal. Yeah. Because it was, like... Yeah, I mean, this guy was like, it was just unheard of. And it, and no one really, like, got up, you know, no one blamed the guy for assassinating the judge. Obviously, it was a murder, but, like, you know, it was almost like, yeah, of course, he was so upset that he did this. So my point is, it's extremely rare. Um, and so uh, what I what I, I think is pretty clear is that where you really get the Hadood um, becoming prominent is not in pre-modern states or even in early modern states like the Ottoman Empire, but in in these kind of like neo neo Islamist attempts to kind of recapture this lost past, like the Boko Haram or the Taliban or something, where they're they're like these traumatized people who are trying to recreate this. It's almost like American, you know, Christians talking about like you know we want our country back. We want like a time when everybody knew it was right and like you know father knew best and all this. Sort of, there was never a time like that. There was never actually a time like that. This is just something you've imagined. And so if you imagine some sort of trying to recreate that, and it would kind of almost this like Paul Pot like uh, Khmer Rouge attitude you have to take to shape society like that. Uh, this is, I think, what these things like, you know, like ISIS or, or Boko Haram do is they're, they're trying to recreate a past that didn't ever exist in the sense that they read about right. it. It's kind of like, uh, I mean, from a psychological lens, I mean, clearly distorted thinking, i.e. generalizations or black and white, you know, way of seeing the world uh, is going to also have consequential distorted behaviors and harmful behaviors because the understanding itself is already quite limiting or even dogmatic. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Fair enough. So can, maybe we can get our, our hands on, I mean, you, you mention a lot of really good examples um, in, in your books and in your articles on Yaqeen, certainly. But maybe you can kind of like, if we were to picture it like a table and you had uh, the columns, you know, you have Sharia, you have Urf, you have Adat, you have Fiqh. You know, what do those mm. terms mean and, and how would we kind of compare and contrast? So, for example, I know you've talked about, you know, alcohol, shara'in is always going to be haram. It doesn't matter if it's the urf of America mm. or not. That's always going to go haram across the board. Um, but then let's say, you know, shaking a woman's hand at a business meeting, right? Mm. So maybe you can give us mm. a couple of examples that where sharia honors the urf, but also at times where it doesn't matter what the urf is. Um, the Sharia or the Fiqh will oppose it because of the essential values or principles it's trying to uphold. Yeah, I mean, so a good example would just be dress. So, you know, like if you, um, like I can wear, you know, a suit and a tie, even, you know, a silk tie if it's 
if it's within like a certain width, uh, three or four fingers width of, um, uh, and certainly if it's like a silk blend, that's fine. If it's a, then, then it's not even a big deal. Or you know, if obviously a wool tie is not an issue, or a cotton tie. I mean, so that's not um, that's totally off, like how you dress. So so uh, now, if for example, I can't wear a cross because that's a religious symbol, and the Prophet said that you know. You know, that whoever takes on the appearance of a people is one of them. And the way that was understood is not um, like you can't wear pants and a suit. It's that you can't take on the religious garb and the religious symbols of another, another religion. Um, so if we were, you know, so, but but let's say let's say there's like a new religion starts, and their their symbol is you know a um, you know a um, like a ha- like a like a hashtag, right? So, let's say there's like a new religion of Twitter, okay, <laughs> hashtag, and so then I actually could not have like let's say I wanted to have like a hashtag necklace or something, I couldn't wear a hashtag necklace because that would be a religious symbol. So, in that sense, like. It's actually the orf that kind of we're responding to. So we can't if it, if something in the orf is known to be a religious symbol of another group, we can't wear that. So if we went to a place where no one understood a cross as meaning Christianity, then we could actually wear crosses because that would be like as no, it doesn't have that meaning. It's nothing inherent to the symbol. It's how the symbol is understood. Um, but then again, there's also so those are you know so if I wear want to wear an overcoat or if a woman wants to wear a you know, um, a long cotton dress or a wool sweater or whatever, right? These things are all meaningless. Um, you can do it. They're, these are just based on local custom. But then, you know, for example, let's say it's local custom to wear silk shirts. Well, no, men, Muslim men can't wear silk shirts, right? Or let's say it's local custom for women to wear, you know, um, kind of tank tops everywhere. Well, it doesn't matter. Muslim women can't wear tank tops in public. So, you know, there's certain uh, restrictions that that are not changing based on either specific scriptural um, uh, edicts of the prophet and the Quran, or because it's in certain ways that the order for the prophet is is authoritative. So the way that the when the prophet says when the Quran says, you know, men and women should not show or women should not show of their beauty, except Malvahara, right, except what shows. That isn't like Madhahara in America. It's not <laughs> right. what shows normally in America. It's what shows normally in the time of the Prophet. So when the Prophet specifies what that means, that becomes definitive and, and binding mm. um, for men and women. Um, but then like exactly what you're wearing, what styles, all that stuff, that uh, is di- dictated by by custom, mm-hmm. and is that the dictation of custom and its interplay with Sharia? Is that what we would call now fiqh? Well, yeah, I mean, so the, what I, I I'm actually writing an article about this on Yuklin, but so one example would be, um, like, so there's certain things that are the the Quran states are supposed to be are based on fiqh. So when the the Quran talks about, like, for example, uh, right? For either keep, marry them and keep them according to what's ma'ruf, what's known to be right, or send them away in a goodly way. Like either 
be married with them in a right way or divorce them in a good way, right? So what's th- those two things of right and good are dictated by custom, right? So what's, what is like a good, the right way for a husband to act in a, in a Muslim husband or a Muslim wife is dictated by custom. So in America, like, you know, even by class. So in America, certain classes of people, certain socioeconomic groups expect, you know, the husband to do a lot of work around the house, a lot of child care, and maybe other parts of the Muslim world, uh, they don't expect that. And so those two things are totally, totally different. Those are both binding for those areas. Um, and, and then there's other things that are uh, not specified as being governed by Orf, but are just understood to be. So, for example, like what kind of uh, contracts you can have, like what kind of conditions you can have on a contract. Uh, what kind of, that kind of stuff. This is wasn't specified from the Prophet of the Quran as, as as being you know governed by Urf, but it's just always understood as such. And then there are certain types of Urf that are, you know, completely outside of of what's you know it doesn't matter. Like I said before, like it doesn't matter if it's Urf if it's accepted in a society for everybody to drink or eat pork. That's not going to uh, ever be authoritative for for Muslims. Or nor normative for myself. Yeah. What what is like one example that you can think of where, you know, in Islamic history, scholars did allow a orf to happen, maybe at least at the beginning, even though it opposed an Islamic value. Do we have any instances of that? Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting tradition in West Africa, which it's actually unclear exactly when it emerges, either in like the 1100s or the 1300s. It's called the Jahanke or Jahanke. Uh, it's spelled J-A-H-A-N-K-E, Jahanke mm-hmm. uh, tradition. And what this says is that it's sort of a tradition of, of teaching and, and kind of instruction in the Maliki school in West Africa and the kind of Senegambia, Mali region, um, and kind of into what be now Nigeria and Niger and Chad. Um, and uh, what it says is that a uh, kufr is is God's will. Like so, the reason there's kufr when in a place it's it's God's will. You you can't kind of don't get like upset about it, right? So you 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 have to work, basically people just need to be educated, and that you're allowed to live under a non-Muslim ruler as long as they allow you to practice your religion, and that your job is basically to just try and instruct people and be a good example. But you shouldn't sort of be militant or kind of rage against what's around you because what's around you is actually it's just supposed it's like what God has set up to be your challenge. So that um, what that means is that they're a lot more relaxed about dealing with um, non-Muslim conduct, even amongst Muslims, like until they can kind of gradually affect change. Uh, and then the other, uh, you know, another example actually, which is kind of interesting is, um, in the Berber areas of, of North Africa in, and this is the earliest example we have. Of this is, I think from around the 1400s, the, the, a lot of these like, rural Berber tribes had customs that were completely, um, antithetical to the Sharia. And so Muslim scholars would kind of try and find like a, like the, basically they'd be like, what is the bare minimum we can accept from these, like we can accept from these people to 
have their lifestyle be like compliant to the Sharia, but without pushing them too far. So, uh, for example, and they would write these agreements. They were called uh, alwah, or like they're like lauh is like board or something. Uh, so is it like we're like boards or, or kind of plates? And uh, they would see, for example, like in one area, it was customary that um, if someone was like a repeat alcoholic, they would burn that person's house down. And so like the ulama were like, OK, well, I guess we could conceivably have this as a legitimate punishment. So like, OK, that will basically that's OK. And so that's just an example of of how they would try and go to like the outer, like the liminal area between where like the outer limits of the Sharia and wherever these people's tribal custom were so that they could kind of pull them into the, like the, the farthest reaches of the Sharia without, but not, you know, they weren't going to try and make them into these sort of cityed, uh, totally Maliki, uh, normal Maliki Muslims. Right. Yeah, I mean, what came up for me was uh, I think there's also that custom when you're uh, a woman is getting married, she would overeat and keep eating to get, you know, rich and fleshy, so to speak, because that was considered beautiful. And of course, you know, overeating to the point of sometimes throwing up and being forced to. I, I remember seeing a documentary about that. So that would be an example that would perhaps shed light on this as well. Like, in other words, yeah, you can eat extra to get a little chunkier, but to overeat every day to the extent where you're wasting food and throwing up, um, you know, that might not be, uh, that might not resonate with, with the principles of, of Islamic law and certainly the eating habits found in the yeah. Sunnah. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think that uh, my guess is that would be, you know, that would be something probably, my guess would be like a lot, some scholars would probably discourage it, but uh, they might not prohibit it just because it's hard to, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you would have like a fatwa about, right? So it wouldn't really be a legal issue, like a legal case you'd have in court or anything, but someone might say, you know, it's wrong for you to do this uh, because it's israf, it's, you know, it's, it's excessive, uh, it's un, uh, immoderate. But at the same time, it's sort of ultimately up to that person to decide because maybe they're just really hungry, you know, and right. <laughs> it's kind of it's sort of it's sort of like a, you can sort of give you can give uh, guidance on that. But it's it's the kind of thing that is going to if people want it to continue, it's going to continue, even if people say it's haram, even if or right. scholars say it's haram, because it's just it's sort of unpoliceable. Right, right. It's very hard to manage and have surveillance over that. This kind of leads us to our next segment, Dr. Jonathan Brown, which is, um, you know, nowadays, you know, there's a lot of interesting discourse that perhaps yourself, you know, as well as, you know, I've certainly noticed a lot of changes, it's kind of like the good old days when Muslims were arguing is about were you a Khwani or Sufi or Salafi or Tabrighi. Now it's like all kinds of new ideas and worldviews from these, you know, ideas from coming from this kind of progressive you know, Muslim phenomena to uh, new sects altogether, like the submitters, you know, people who only follow the Quran or follow the works of, I think it was Dr. Khalifa Rashid. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, the political positions of the left and right and, and what is the center. Um, so I wanted to kind of pick your brain a bit more about that. And specifically, uh, you wrote a very powerful article on Yaqeen um, entitled, 
LGBTQ and Islam revisited the days of of, of the Donald. And uh, I know that Dr. Uh, Shadi al-Masri, who I, whom I also really admire, if you wanted to maybe summarize a bit for us. Like, I, I don't mind people disagreeing with me. I'm uh, If people do, you know, if people do, you know, read my work and critically evaluate it and are serious, it's an honor for me, you know, it's an honor. Right. Uh, so I was really happy. Uh, so, and we, and we, you know, I wanted him to, uh, do that because, you know, I, I think his position is totally legitimate and that I wanted that to be expressed. Like I, I, I thought that it would, it was not, it was not fair to just put my opinion out there. And, and I thought it was unhelpful. Let me put it this way. I thought it was unhelpful to put my opinion out there mm-hmm. and not have that other opinion along with it because it doesn't. I feel like there are two halves of, of a, the same coin, two sides to the same coin. Yeah. I mean, they have to be, you have to look at them together. I mean, people have to understand like what the different perspectives are. And I, I think it's also important because it helps. I mean, I think it helps kind of set the, in a way, set the parameters for the discussion and kind of people to know, okay, what are the, like, what are kind of the, the, what are the sort of limits of what we can discuss here? So, you know, no one is, you know, I don't think it's, acceptable for Muslims to say that, um, you know, to kind of take a just completely progressive liberal view and just say, oh, everything's fine in Islam and Islam allows this and that and the other. That's not accurate. I don't think it's historically accurate. I don't think it's religiously accurate. I don't think it's actually helpful for Muslims in any way. I don't consider that to be really legitimate opinion for Muslims to have, but there are, there are other within, but aside from that, there are, there are other, there's the totally, uh, in my opinion, acceptable disagreements. Like I cannot, you know, I read, of course, uh, uh, Dr. Shadi's uh, response and, you know, and it was a compelling response. Like, I mean, a lot of times I, I, I was reading that and I was like, you know, he's got, he's got really got some good points here, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and I, I would, I don't have, um, I don't have answers to everything he said like i can't be like oh i'll tell you why dr chatty's wrong he's wrong because of abc like i can i can make the argument i made which i think brings up important important points and themes his argument brings up important points and themes and then i think it's up to muslims to sort of figure out okay where like you know it's not easy to know what's right like uh what do we call it detective sam spade says in the maltese falcon it's not always easy to know what's right you know, you don't, you know, you, we have a lot of pressures on us, a lot of concerns. We have, um, a lot of tradition to draw on. We're in a kind of unique position uh, that Muslims haven't really been in before, especially with this kind of issue. Muslims haven't really faced this kind of issue before. Uh, um, almost no society has faced this kind of issue before about, about things like sexuality and gender. So, you know, I, I think we should have a little mercy on ourselves and realize this is actually really kind of unexplored territory and that it's like, you know, I just wanted Muslims to be able to, to who read this to say like, okay, here's, here's some different inputs and priorities and arguments that are all, I think, legitimate, but you know, some of them might be more convincing than others. And, uh, I, I'm not, I would absolutely not say that, oh, I know for sure I'm right. And Dr. Shadi's wrong. I, I would not for a second say that. I think, I think I'm right. And it may, I may well be wrong, and I uh, so that's my position. 
Right, and and that didn't come across uh, in in the article. You know, I mean, the last paragraph here, I think, sums it, sums up this point beautifully by Dr. Shetty. He said, "Quote: I thank and and commend Dr. Jonathan Brown for inviting me to respond to his article within certain parameters. The scholars of the past compartmentalize their differences, and so as their students, we ought to imitate them." And I believe this pair of articles represents a good exercise and example in civil discussion, debate, and disagreement. One of the things that is sort of frustrating about, um, I think it's gotten a lot better, to be honest. I, I think um, there were some controversies in the Muslim community, there are, and there are some still, that I think had some really kind of systematic problems within them, uh, where one side was simply not understanding that they were asking for a level of like kind of agree to disagree, but that wasn't the kind of discussion. So, I mean, just for example, like if you have a, if there's a boycott, right, you can't be like, I'm going to break the boycott, but I don't want you to get upset at me. So that's not how boycotts work. Like it's not, that's, you know, that's not a boycott. Right. Um, and so I remember uh, one guy who I actually have a lot of respect for. Uh, he's uh, one of the smartest and kind of most balanced Muslims that I know in the in the Muslim kind of American leadership. This guy uh, Farhan Latif from the Hubri Foundation. A couple of years ago, he asked me, he's like, "So what? What is your vision for future of Muslims in America? Or like, what would you?" And I actually had never thought about that. <laughs> I was always arguing. And criticizing, and I was like, you know what? I never actually thought about what I would suggest, or like what kind of rules I would, if I could somehow govern everything, what I would lay out. And I, one of the things that, that I thought of was, you know, I um, that Muslims are going to have disagreements, and they're going to have differences of opinion and how to approach any number of issues, whether political or social issues. And I think one of the just the kind of red lines would be, uh, as long as you're not you know, really harming and undermining the legitimate efforts of other Muslims on on kind of legitimate and moral and religious topics. So, you know, as long as you're, you know, there, there can be different approaches. Like, for example, Dr. Shadi's approach and my approach to this issue of LGBT stuff, like, I actually don't think they're mutually exclusive. No, they're not. Right? And, and so, you know, we could well both pursue our different approaches and we could disagree with each other, but we're not going to be in a position where we're like actually undermining one another. Right. So, you know, and even like, for example, let's say a Muslim says, I want to go be a Republican Muslim. I want to go work for the Republican party. And like, I want to go work for the democratic party. Okay. Even that I think is, com is completely fine because they're both, they're both pursuing kind of probably similar interests and, and similar, um, you know, maybe, um, uh, interests or, or aims that everybody would agree with, but they just have different visions of how we'll get there. And, you know, they are competitive with one another, but they're not, uh, they're not kind of just core self. They're, they're not just, uh, at their core, they're not mutually destructive. You know, they're, they're kind of, uh, in, in constructive, uh, competition. Right. I mean, I kind of what came up for me is this idea of there's a thesis and antithesis and then a synthesis. I think it was Hegel who you know put that forth, this idea of how knowledge and ideas keeps evolving, so to speak. And this is something that we've got to inject in our communities and our discourse in a more serious way. Is that kind of what you mean?
Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good way to put it. And you know, you can't, you know, you can't, uh, you know, you you one of the things that, and this is what Shadi, you know, mentioned is that one of the strengths Muslims always had is they understood that although they were very passionate and spent a lot of time and, and effort in their developing their understanding of the world, that it was always just probabilistic and they could never be sure they were right. And uh, so there was always the, there was in, there was built in room for plurality of opinion. And it, uh, and I think actually this is a good place where um, we, you know, we live in a, I think one of the features of our sort of a sort of post Rousseauian something that he had a Rousseau's ideas that had a big impact on us. So, you know, we, we have this idea of being sincere, you know, everything has to be sincere and you can't kind of have superficial stuff. But so, you know, what that means is that we have a, in American political life, we have a, we've really been hostile to kind of formalism and etiquette. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone will be like, well, how could you ever, how could you ever sit and like be on stage and be polite with someone who has this political right. view? You know, he's just like a monster. You know, how could you ever, you know, how could you ever accept Donald Trump's invitation to this or that? I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't like Donald Trump. But my point is like, you know, this once when you get into that way of thinking, it becomes it's the second you disagree with someone. It's very easy for that disagreement simply to become all consuming and to be totally polarizing. Whereas one of the things I really like about the Islamic tradition is that there was always understood that there was like an etiquette. So. Even if someone, even if you desperately hated someone's guts and like you just completely disagreed with them, if they came to your house and said, you know, I want your hospitality, you would honor them as a guest and you would sit with them and eat with them. And they, you know, they would have certain rights and you would have certain obligations and vice versa. And, and what that does is actually creates a space for people to exist and to exchange ideas and, and like, you know, uh, or that you go to Hajj every year, and even though people totally, you know, Sunnis and Shiites might totally disagree with each other on this, that, and the other, it might be in some big fight or something like that. They all go to Hajj, and they're all there going around the Kaaba. They're still going to share bread and water when they're at the Kaaba. Yeah, and so, and there's a great, you know, I sometimes I use scenes from Lawrence of Arabia sometimes in my classes. I know it's kind of cheesy, but I think the movie is a great movie. And there's this one scene I remember. Uh, that uh, uh, Alec Guinness, you know, slash Prince Faisal, he says, I think he says something like, for Lawrence, um, compassion is like mercy is an obsession. For me, it's merely good manners. You may judge which of the two is more reliable. So when you, if you, you know, it's great if everything everybody does is always sincere and coming from their heart. But if you, if everybody's always doing what's coming from their heart, then they, you know, people become really destructive and and they're unpredictable and they're, they're pretty, um, sometimes irreconcilable with one another. Whereas if there's a notion of etiquette and manners that kind of controls you, then at least, you know, maybe people don't mean everything they say, but at least human beings can interact in a civil way in a non-destructive way. Right. But the only way that can really happen from what I'm understanding you say is it's almost like our, 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 our virtues have to transcend our personal inclinations. Yeah, definitely. And so you have to know, like, you know, I mean, it's one of the things I think is just, just an example. For example, like uh, in the, the Ashari School of Theology, there's a strong trend in the Ashari School of Theology, which would say something like, if you believe that God is in a certain place, that's kufr. Mm-hmm. Because that means you believe God is encompassed in a body and God is, you know, that's just, 
for a lot of ushery scholars, that's like a very, very problematic thing to say. And so according to their logic, that would actually make someone a Catholic, right? right? But what the most influential and intelligent usheries would say is, but that's not true. How do we know that's not true? Because the, some of the, many of the early Muslims, the first two generations of Muslims, they would point up at God. When they talked about God, they would point up, right? And we know they were not Catholic. Mm-hmm. So even though this, like our logic kind of takes us in the direction that this thing is kufr, this belief is kufr, we know it can't be because these people were not declared Catholics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we sit and you can sit there and be like, oh, I know that X sect has to be Catholic because they have this idea. This idea is so bad. And let me get into how bad it is. And let me just show you how horrible it is and why it means this. But you know what? These guys have been going to Hajj for X number of centuries, and that means they're Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes you just got to check, you know, check out of the whole, you know, kind of logic or sectarian logic or ideological logic um, uh, train of thought and just bring uh, in the heart. Like, Look, you got to bring in the heart. Yeah. Some of these, some of these, and actually, I wouldn't even say heart. I would say just bring in some really formal categories that you can't argue against. You know, these people are Muslims. You can't do anything about that. They're Muslims. There's nothing to argue about there. Now, okay, but let's let's go back to this article, the LGBT um, article that you wrote on Yaqeen. So w- after reading uh, Dr. Shetty's responses, were there any other uh, shifts in your positions which you stated? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't – I mean, like his – again, a lot of his positions are really – I'm not going to argue and say his positions are wrong. I just think that it's, uh, I think that I would just say that uh, provided that Muslims are actually insist that they be, I mean, provided that Muslims actually stick by what they believe, right? And provided that Mm -hmm. Muslims actually promote what they think is the healthy vision of society around them. I don't think it's wrong for Muslims to work with other groups that don't have that same vision of society, right? Uh, but if mm-hmm. Muslims start su- uh, surrendering or um, submitting on their own religious beliefs or start giving up the right to try and promote what they think is a good way to live, then I think that would be unacceptable. But provided they don't do those two things, mm-hmm. I don't see – Shadi's opinion and mine is being completely, uh, you know, I don't consider them to be in opposition. Perhaps Dr. Shadi was pointing out the, um, you know, the weightiness of some of the risks that with some of the positions Mm -hmm. that you offered there, like either I think it was being a rejectionist um, or embracing and so on and so forth, that maybe he was pointing out that, look, I'm concerned because some of these risks shouldn't be taken lightly. And because of that, you know, he had... had yeah, but I don't, I don't accept uh, the, the rejection. I don't accept the acceptance position. That, well, I can't remember what I called it, the kind of total acceptance. I, would, I don't, completely don't accept that. The only ones... I mean, that's... It. I mean, maybe I didn't make this clear. I mean, the only one I accept is the... I mean. The only one I accept are the, are the two positions, the, the rejectionist and the, the rachio one. That's mm-hmm. the only ones I accept. Right. No, that was pretty clear. 
Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> Suddenly, I was worried. I was like, oh my god, what if people thought? I, no, I, I was. Arguing I was just those. sharing the categories for those who haven't read the article, but we're certainly going to have a link for it so people can can know what we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like you know, again, there could be like two rights, if you will, or or two sides to the same coin, as you said. So, I mean, I think I think Dr. Shai's opinion is in a, in effect that. Uh, the only are the only society the only vision of society and the only path to argue for is one that has a kind of let's just call it traditional notion of gender and family and sexuality and that you know if you start saying well let's accept pluralism and all you know i i i i'm not going to try and make everyone else live like me around me and and stuff like that and that he would actually say no that's 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 a mistake you're that's not your job. Your job as a Muslim is to try and make society into a godly society and a good society. And you can't shirk that responsibility just because you're a minority and, you know, it seems like the left has won the culture wars, right? You doesn't matter. You have to keep fighting for that vision. And that's, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty darn good argument. Like, I mean, I'm not gonna, like, you know, you, you look at this stuff, you know, stuff that's happening in our society around you. And you're like, this is just a lot of stuff is like completely insane. This is completely insane and absurd. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I just like, you know, this, this one girl and this little girl in my neighborhood, like, you know, she's like four years old and she's changed her gender, you know? And you're like, this is like, you know what? So you're going to have like a four year olds telling you what their gender is. Like, that's how, that's like the society you're going to run. How does that work? Like, Four-year-olds don't even right. tell you what they want to eat. They can't even say, they don't be like, I want to eat ice cream all day. Or I don't want to go to school. I want to play. Okay. You don't listen to them on that. But then they're like, I'm actually not what my biological gender is. You're like, oh, okay. Well, let's just totally change the whole way we think about you and indulge you on this. Like that, like, so I think that there's a really good argument that a lot of aspects of the kind of super, you know, kind of complete progressive uh, vision of society are are disastrous. I mean, they're disastrous, like not even at a moral level. They're disastrous at just like a logistical level, at a, like a practical level of how you would actually function. Yeah, you know, um, and uh, and so I, I mean, that's a, I think a strong point Shadi has. I mean, my only response to that would be, it may be that, and this is kind of like the kind of Rod Dreher Benedict option vision, which is that. It may be that our society, you know, Western society is kind of too far gone down this path and that, you know, the best you can do is kind of try and create sort of bubbles where you can exist in a, in a, in a way that's, in, in, you know, aligned with your beliefs and conforms with your beliefs and, and morality and to almost like create these like kind of millets to go with like the Ottoman, you know, millet or demi, like kind of millets within Western society where you know, more traditional mm-hmm. people can live and to kind of structure society so that can work. And um, so that, that would be like, I think it's just, it's sort of like, do you, do you just like keep fighting to kind of, like, to sort of for the triumph of sort of a traditional view of society? Or do you sort of say like, okay, that's not really on the table anymore. So let's just try and create a vision, create a society where I'm at least going to be able to live in like a bubble of my own creation with my community where we we're able to like 
live according to our laws and our morality and our institutions and everyone else right. is going to leave us No, I, I get that because definitely one of the um, rebuttals that Dr. Shetty has was this idea that the act of supporting what Allah prohibited is itself prohibited. And I'm hearing you say, well, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But in the situation that we're in, if, if you know, supporting, let's say, the extreme left or the progressive left allows Muslims to be able to live the way that they want, um, is that a greater end, so to speak? But he also mentioned that, you know, the means does kind of shape the ends as well. So, I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, I would, so, I mean, I always try to make clear, like we're not, I don't, I want to be very clear. I'm not supporting someone else's lifestyle. I'm not, I'm not condoning it. I'm not encouraging it. Right. But I also realize that, and if they ask me, if they say like, do you think my lifestyle is good? I'll say, no, I don't think it's good. And I'll tell you why I don't think it's good. And I would encourage you not to do this, et cetera, et cetera. But I also understand that they're not going to listen to me and they have no obligation right. to listen to me. And considering that, and considering that I basically have no power anyway in the society, I have very little power anyway in the society, you know, how can I actually shape this act to, to shape this society in a way that's going to be conducive to my righteous life as a Muslim? And that can be only, only can be done by working with these people. It can't be done working with, in my opinion, with the kind of right wing groups because they are so hostile to Muslims that they don't want them here. I mean, if, if you're being, I mean, the the extent to which they want to basically like hunt down and end Muslim life in this country, the extent is just it's terrifying. And their hostility is it's baffling and it's uh, it's uh, it's frightening. Right. I mean, I guess it it all depends on, on how somebody now defines harm and to what extent they're willing to go through harm. Right. So on the one hand, it's like, okay. Some groups want to just get rid of you completely. Others may see the left as, well, they want to get rid of your faith completely and kind of absorb you into some social political movement. So for some people, that's more threatening than just being, uh, you know. I, and, and, and by the way, I completely understand. I mean, I completely agree with you, right? I mean, that's one of the things I sit around angsting about and arguing about, you know, all the time about is do not, I mean, with other Muslim leaders, in this country, I, one of the things that they I mean, they get sick of me saying this, and they they say we're sick of me <laughs> saying this. I say, don't go down this path. Don't get. Don't accept this. I mean, I don't want to be like one of these guys who's always attacking liberalism. There's always there's a lot of good things about liberalism, but let's just just sort of kind of say, ex, sort of per, excessive liberal argument. Don't don't go down this kind of cliched liberal argument mm-hmm. path where. You know, for example, on the you know issue of FGM, people will be like, you know, a lot of Muslims were saying, a lot of Muslim leaders were like, any medically unnecessary cutting of a child's body is completely morally unacceptable. It has to be condemned totally. And I would say, you realize that that includes male circumcision, right? Right. And they would just be like, oh, I mean, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Like, why not? Like, that's actually already happening in European countries and in American countries. And in America, there's organizations that lobby against male circumcision consider it to be, you know, child abuse. So if you don't, you know, or like, for example, if you say um, that, you know, if a a woman accuses a man of, of, or another woman of, a man of sexual assault or another woman of of sort of allowing sexual assault to occur, 
that that person should automatically be believed and that that's in effect a legal procedure, then, you know, then Muslims are suddenly surprised when like, you know, a, a, Muslim, a Muslim, you know, a liberal Muslim gets accused of this and they have no way to defend themselves. Like, well, okay, why, why would you support a kind of in effect judge process of judgment that does not give the accused party mm -hmm. any right mm -hmm. to defense. I mean, and doesn't place any burden of proof on the accuser. Like, there's a reason why we have presumption of innocence in our society right. and in the Islamic tradition. Like, it's not like, you know, these were stupid ideas that a bunch of idiots came up with and now we can get rid of them. No, these were like <laughs> really important ideas that are really important for having functional, normal societies where people aren't going around in like some kind of weird crucible McCarthy era thing uh, uh, destroying each other through accusations. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I wrote an article about that on the Amman Wire called, um, I think, Presumption of Innocence When Too Many Innocents Go Unheard. I think mm -hmm. that was a good title. Um, but the, so, I mean, you know, one of the things I, I, I think is a big problem is, uh, is especially Muslim kind of activist leaders just really getting drawn into this logic where they don't, they're not pushing back at all on some of the kind of templates of thought and patterns of behavior that are that are promoted in these uh, left progressive circles. Um, I, I think it's important and very good to be involved in those circles and to build alliances in them. But you're also helping those other people out. When you say to someone like, you know, no, uh, of course people have rights when they're accused of stuff. Like that's, that's gonna help them of in the course. end ultimately too, because you know, look what happens in the, you know, all you have to do now to get rid of a democratic lawmaker is basically get someone to come and accuse them of something and they have no mechanisms to defend themselves. Or, you know, if, you know, uh, of course, like we believe that we have the right to do things, do cultural things to our children, like pierce their ears or, um, you know, uh, give them certain medical treatment that might not be necessary or, deny them medical treatment that some people might think is necessary. These are things that are established rights in, in, our, in, in, a, in a society. And these are established because it's recognized that parents have a strong degree of control of their children's lives. And that's not, you know, to say that, um, you know, that, that when you talk about things like medically unnecessary, like this is a highly uh, arbitrary concept, you know, and you, you can't just sort of accept that uh, wholesale uh, without realizing that it's an incredibly culturally loaded term that's being de defined by a certain culture and a certain tradition and others cultures and traditions might disagree with that. And that, that like, that has to be a discussion that even a liberal society has. So when you, you know, Muslims have to push back on this stuff. Uh, otherwise, not only are they going to get steamrolled, but this, li these liberal kind of progressive coalitions are going to tear themselves apart with almost like autoimmune viciousness that they just, They'll they'll start to shred each they shred themselves internally. No, that's a really good response, uh, Doctor John. I wanted to check in with you about some of the questions, and if there were any specific that you wanted me to ask you um, during this conversation, so we could make sure that that got in there. Would you like me to read them to you real quick? The ones that were left. Yeah, yeah, sure, go for it. So one one said, "Is there room for a Muslim political party in the United States? Do you think it is legal to form one? If so, would it be judicious to build one?" Uh, so next question is, how do you feel about Muslim scholars who are actively branding themselves 
I don't mean with hot irons and such, but rather in the sense that they <laughs> that they market themselves. That's a pretty good joke. <laughs> that they market themselves with flattering pictures and engagements with high consideration of their own prominence and profile, rather than to fulfill the age-old responsibility of profits. And another question says. For a general lay audience, what are the things we should know about hadith and hadith preservation? The Quran only movement is growing is a growing phenomena. So how does the average Muslim equip themselves with the knowledge why hadith are actually legitimate sources of knowledge? Basically, hadith 101 for an American Muslim. Um, so you can – if do any of those speak to you? And if so, I'll, I'll ask again and then we can, we can address uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I mean I'll try, and, I'll try and answer all of them quickly. I mean the political party, I never thought about that. Okay. I mean, I think that in general, I mean, in the U.S., I, as far as I understand, that's just not really how politics works. I mean, you don't you don't create a political party. You just create a constituency within one of the existing parties. Um, and I think that's being done, which is good. Uh, it has been being done for a while. And the second question, you know, I don't. I'll be honest, I don't really know what branding means. I, people use this phrase all the time, but mm-hmm. I don't really know what it means. So I was asking my wife about this. I was like, what is branding? And she said, she's like, oh, it's, it's um, she said, it's kind of upping who you are. It's like taking who you are, but like upping it or something, which I thought was a, maybe a good description. So, but I don't, I still don't really understand what branding is. So, like when someone says like when someone says like you know when Donald Trump is like a brand, what does that mean? He's a brand. He's like I don't, I don't understand what that means. Well, if you'd like, I can try to explain it. Yes, tell me, tell me, please. So, so one way I understand branding is it's basically the way you sell the value that you have to offer or the 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 powerful story behind who you are, which is going to pull people in for whatever cause or service that you're trying to deliver, so to speak, right? So that's why, you know, part of being an entrepreneur or having a business is you need to solidify your your brand. In other words, you know, um, when when I think about Dr. Jonathan Brown, the first thing I, I that I think about is is hadith, history, um, Islamic law, you know, an American guy in a suit. Like that's your brand. You know, that's those are the 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 things that evoke me when I think about your name, right? Now, if you have a website with certain symbolism, but that's also but that's also who I am. But that's, I mean, that's not a brand. That's just me. Well, yeah, your brand is you. Just like there's people whose brand is themselves, right? They sell themselves. So then, I guess I don't really. So I I guess if I guess I don't understand how scholars brand themselves because I mean, if you're a scholar. In the end of the day, your what you have to offer is clear. Like it's a, it's it's a it's a book or an argument or an article or a speech, right? And and either that thing does the job it's supposed to do or it doesn't. And if it doesn't do the job, I don't really know why anyone would quote unquote buy you or consume you. Um, and if it does do the job, then you don't have to worry about. It. Brand then you have a good brand. <laughs> so, but the, but then the brand is identical to just the quality of your work. So, I mean, I guess I understand. Like, I'm not naive to think that, like, oh, you do good work, and not, not and you know, nothing else matters. Yeah, may, maybe the person was coming more, Doctor John, from the sense of like, what, like, maybe there are some examples where people or organizations might overdo it, or just yeah. kind of, you know, it's too focused on the marketing and like the repertoire and mm. the popularity and the celebrity status versus like the work. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm again, I'm just, I'm just offering another angle. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is a, I think 
I think, I mean, let me take it from the way I would approach it uh, as a scholar. So the, the kind of scholarly ethos is both in the Islamic and the Western tradition is that, you know, you, you sort of do good work and it's almost bad manners mm-hmm. to promote what you're doing because it's sort of, it's arrogant and, uh, it's arrogance, right. And it's it sort of, you, it's, it's, it's arrogant to think that you're important enough and that you stand out enough that you should be sought, you should be, you know, in, heated and then listened to. Um, but at the same time, you know, but I remember it was, I, I always think about it as kind of being something that was in the mid 2000s that started happening where people would start sending out on listservs like, I just did this, I just did that. And like, you know, and then that became just completely normal. Right. And so now everybody does that. Um, you know, they do it on social media, they do it on, you know, from whatever marketing power they have. And uh, so, I mean, that kind of just became our orf. And now I feel like if you're a scholar and you don't kind of promote your work in the sense of just raising awareness of its existence. So, for example, I have a Facebook page. OK, so when I write something, I put it on my Facebook page and I have a Twitter account and I send it on Twitter. And, you know, Yaqeen has uh, its like marketing team and they'll like market, you know, stuff we write. Um, so. That I, I don't really think about as branding. I think about it as just as this is just the kind of necessary awareness raising that people do if they are part of a discourse and they want right, to participate right. in that discourse, right? And so you could, and that does take. There is an element of arrogance, right? So you know, when I was younger, I mean, I would like to think that let's say I was ten years younger, I was myself, but just ten years younger today. Okay, I do. I would like to think that I would not do that as much as I do now. So now when I write something, well, first of all, I actually write stuff. So for many, many years, I never wrote things about stuff that was happening in the Muslim community or, or you know, controversies because I was too young and too junior to do that. And I didn't have enough knowledge. I didn't have enough understanding. And I felt like at a certain point, even if I didn't have exactly what I needed to have. Like it was the need was pretty bad and that I was going to try and contribute because I felt that I had been sought out. And I mean, it took, you know, after a couple of years of having people coming and telling me like, please tell me about this, please tell me about this. I started to realize it doesn't matter what I think about myself. There's young people who who are asking for help and I got to go try and offer my help to them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, let me just finish my thought, which was, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I would like to think that if I hadn't been kind of prompted to do that, that I would not have done it. Uh, but once you feel like you're a contributor in a discourse, then you have to raise awareness. Otherwise, you're just being naive. Right. In other words, it's kind of like a, an effect of the marketplace. And now Islamic education is becoming more accessible. It's digital. And this is this is the exposure methods that we have. But maybe one point of advice you can offer is, OK, how do we recognize the gift that God gave us to serve in that particular way? I.e., when you realize there's a lot of young people that need what I have to offer, how do I get that to them? And keeping yourself sincere and humble along the way, because it's it's a test on any ego that as success rises, you're going to have to you know remember where that all comes from. And sometimes it can get quite tricky. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not, you know, I'm not like one of these, 
celebrity sheikhs. Like, I mean, these guys have, you know, nobody, you know, after I give a speech, you will come and ask me questions and that's it. And which is great. Like, I know people in come to be like, can I marry you? Or, <laughs> you know, whatever. I don't know what people say. Like, I, I mean, I, I, people are just pretty normal with me. So I'm grateful for that. I don't, I, I really don't want that to change. I think that, but for the, what I, from my own experience, I can say that, you know, you have to, the, the, the trap that you fall into is, um, I need to, uh, you start to become a prisoner of your fans, quote unquote. Right. right? So, you know, you say, Oh, I have an influence. Um, I I'm really be able to affect people and that's really good. And I don't want to say this thing, even though I know it's right, because it'll, it'll piss these people off. And then you start to, to think, you know, okay, well, then who's, who's really... Who am I doing this for? Yeah, who's really influencing who, right? I mean, I'm, what's my purpose if, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm doing this because I, I think I have an understanding of certain things and I want to help other people? Uh, why am I not sharing that if I think it's going to be unpopular? Um, and so, you know, you know, you have to, uh, I don't know, Dr. Shaddy said this once in one of his, uh, lectures, you know, you, you have to be all the w- willing to walk away. You know, you really have to be willing to, um, to walk away from what you have and you can't be prisoner to it. And you can't, by the way, I mean, this is, it can't be your livelihood. And this is why I'm, you know, I thank the, the Lord every day that I'm a professor and that my job is, you know, my job is to go into class and teach my students and to do research and write books and write articles. That's my job. Um, and uh, if tomorrow no Muslim group ever invites me again or no, you know, no one ever invites me to get to hear my opinion on anything, that's it would it would hurt my ego and I would feel, you know, I'd miss it. But uh that would be, it would just be, it would, I would just get back to my normal life, you know? And so that's, I think a big thing is to not become a prisoner to, to the feeling of, of to, not just to success, but to be a prisoner where you become dependent on people wanting to hear from you. And so you're afraid to tell them things they don't want to hear because you're afraid you'll lose that. That's a wonderful response. Thank you for that, Dr. Jonathan. Okay, how about the other question we had here from one of our patrons? And for those of you who aren't, check out patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem to join our community, and you'll get to submit questions too. Uh, for This question says, for a general lay audience, what are, things, what are the things we should know about hadith and hadith preservation? Oh, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. Okay, so I mean, I would say that one uh, this is way too big a question to answer. So I would say go get my book. Uh, Hadith, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, which has just come out in an, in a great second edition, which is massively expanded. Uh, Hadith, the Prophet's legacy, Muhammad's legacy in the medieval and modern world. Um, I, it's a very good book, I have to say. Uh, obviously, I think that. Um, I second that. Uh, and then you know, there's like a bunch of lectures on YouTube I've given that would probably do a lot of this. But I would say, you know, about the Quran only movement, I think that's interesting because what I would say is, and, and, and this is like, I have a lot of sympathy. You know, I understand people who have that view. Like, I, I understand, like, you know, you read a lot of hadith and you're just like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. This seems crazy right. to me. 
And I literally, I, I just, this just seems like insanity to me and I cannot deal with this. And I just do not want to have anything to do with this. I, I completely understand that reaction. And I understand the idea of like, you know, I want to kind of retreat into the Quran because this is, it's just, it's a lot smaller, it's manageable, and it doesn't seem to be as as strange and foreign and bizarre and irrational as a lot of the stuff that I'm coming across in Sadiq Corpus. But the, the problem with the, the Quran only argument is that it's a, it's a, it's a not even an argument. Okay. You cannot just follow the Quran because I mean, at the very least, the actual, how we know the meaning of Quranic words, just basic Arabic words, we know them through the same tradition that gave us the hadiths, oftentimes through the same exact transmissions. Okay. Um, so we don't even know what the Quran means without the contextualizing tradition of the early Islamic community and the scholarly tradition that comes out of it. Second, you know, you don't meet very many Quran only people who are going to say, oh, I'm only going to pray three times a day because there's only three prayers mentioned in the Quran. Like they're, you know, they're, they're you know, or, or, you know, I'm not going to tell you anything about the life of the Prophet that's not mentioned in the Quran. They're going to draw on all sorts of material. So what they really mean when they say Quran only is, I only want to follow the aspects of the Sunnah or the Sirah that I like and that I can deal with, and I just don't want to deal with the rest of it. Right. Right. And so there's that's just very selective. And it's not selective based on any methodology, just selective based on what makes sense to you and to your lifestyle and to your worldview. But your you, your lifestyle and your worldview are not criteria that mean anything. Right. And I think there's also a strong element amongst Quran only ish people of anti clericalism. Uh, they really don't like the ulama. And part of that is also class issues. I think it's you find it a lot of times among kind of elites from you know South Asia or the Arab world. And they just for them, ulama are these like lower class people like Maulanas or Mulvis or whatever, and they're just who could never become engineers or doctors. Yeah, and and you know, like and it just okay, yeah. Your regular neighborhood, you know, ma mediocre Mulvi or subpar Mulvi is not a great scholar. But don't get information from them. Get information from the great scholars. I mean, the ones who are alive today and the ones who are alive in the past. Like those are the people you should be looking to. Don't 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 judge the ulama by the you know, like you go to a, any university in this country and you just look at the most of the professors are probably not going to be that impressive. But those aren't the ones that you would seek out to help understand things, really. You would seek out the exceptional ones. And so, you know, I think part of it is a kind of mis misjudged or misplaced anti-clericalism where they just don't want to listen to these Mulvies. And so they just they just don't want to hear for them. That's the tradition and they don't want that. So they only try to go by this sort of Quran only or basically their own selective drawing on the tradition as they know it. And that shouldn't be what they do. They should go and find scholars who they do respect and who and who are really accomplished. Right. No, it's a very good point because it's like you said, I mean, there's a lot of doctors out there that practice, but not all of them are exceptional or what we would consider, you know, the um, 
the beacons of light and knowledge and innovation, let's say in medicine, right? doesn't mean now you, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You have to find the right experts for that particular disease that let's say you're trying to cure just because your local doctor and, you know, um, Sharon, Massachusetts, no offense, Sharon, I'm, I, that's where I grew up, <laughs> you know, doesn't know how to heal cancer doesn't mean it's still not, you know, healable. Yeah, exactly. So one question I wanted to ask you, Dr. Jonathan, one that I have asked many people before, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on if Islam is the truth for Muslims, at least, what is the true Islam? Because there are many competing narratives today. And for some, this is confusing and misleading. And I know you've kind of addressed this in, in different ways today throughout our conversation. And this idea of there's all kinds of interpretive efforts and, and scholarly positions on things. And of course, research and knowledge is the first place to start. But I'd love to hear if you could expand on that question a bit more. If Islam is the truth, what is the true Islam? Wow, that's a... Uh... I've never been asked that question that I can think of in that way. Um, Welcome to Coffee with Kareem. Wow, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I would say I, I don't feel like there's one place you find it. I mean, I think that my answer would be the true Islam that I found was found with scholars whose sincerity and piety and knowledge truly convinced me that they were carrying something special. And that doesn't mean that mm, they got cool. everything right, but I learned special things from them in ways that were incredibly meaningful and, 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 and sh totally shaped how I thought about those topics. Right. And even sometimes uh, books, you know, not just scholars, but also books. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, that's what I would say, you know, is, is that it's not I, I can't say there's like just one men hedge or you know, one school of thought that is the true Islam. What I would say is that the true Islam is found in the hearts and in the minds of special people in every time and every in every age and you have to find those people and and learn from them and sometimes those those people will you know become you know put their knowledge and their their persons into books and you can find them in books too beautiful what are some of the scholars that you admire from past or present yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that provided that meaningful impact you're well, describing. Well, I mean, the first was the 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 person whose class I took where I became Muslim when I was in college. She's a professor named uh, Mesa Al Faruqi. She's she was a Palestinian woman. Um, she's a niece of Doctor Ismail Ismail Al Faruqi, um, Allah. And um, the second was another. She was a a grad student actually in history at Georgetown when I was undergrad, but she was teaching a class. I learned a lot from her. Her name was uh, Dr. Haifa Khalifallah. She's coming out now with a book on, I think, Muhammad al-Ghazali, the famous Egyptian scholar who died in 1996. And then, um, although I, I really disagree with his political opinions, uh, Sheikh Ali Juma, who was the uh, former Mufti of Egypt, and um, Another scholar I learned a lot from was a Kuwaiti scholar, Dr. Tark Swaydan. And another one, again, I 
really disagree with his political opinions, but I learned a lot from him was uh, Habib Ali al Jifri. And uh, another uh, one is a, one of my teachers, a guy named, uh, an American guy named Musa Ferber. And another one is a scholar now who, again, I really disagree with his political opinions. Um, very accomplished Hadith scholar in Egypt named uh, Osama Sayyid Mahmoud al-Azhari. And in terms of books, the books of Muhammad, Sheikh Muhammad Abu Zahra, Egyptian scholar who died in 1974, his books really had a big impact on me. And um, the books of the this family of Moroccan scholars, the, the Ghumari family, this had a big impact on me. So I, I think these people had shaped a lot of how I understand my religion and and the world of thought, of thinking critically and thinking accurately. Right. And the, I mean, this kind of circles us back to the beginning of our conversation, this idea that, I mean, it's interesting that you pointed out for a couple of those scholars that I don't agree with their political stand, stances, but I, I benefited immensely from these individuals. And I mean, I think that's just really beautiful in the crux of the matter that you can still learn and take truth and beauty from people, even though there's some things that you don't agree with. And that's kind of the arguments you made in your article on LGBTQ as well, right? That just because you agree in some things doesn't mean you agree in all things. But why, you know, just eradicate that person's position or their contribution completely? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a it's again, it's tough. Like, you know, you you sit there and you be like, how can that how can somebody who I respect come to a certain conclusion? And the answer is that it's possible. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, of course. Human beings are complicated. OK, there you go. Right. And sometimes I'm not wrong. I just didn't have the right information. Yeah. Dr. Jonathan Brown, it was a pleasure speaking with you today, and I hope to have you on again soon. I had a lot of fun, too. It was a good experience. I would be happy to come on again. Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem. That's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem.